You guys almost ready back there? Okay. Hey, cool. We're ready. Come on. Let's get ready. All right. One, two, three, four. Call me corny, but I love that video. Okay? Merry Christmas. How we doing? Good? Good to see you all. If you're new here, we are really glad you're here. This is the best time, I think, to be at Northridge. The glory of Christmas is going on. A great production. Um, If you haven't seen it, I think it's too late. It's going on today, but it's sold out. But anyway, it was a fabulous show. Great. Great, great show. Um, And then during the um, weekend services, we always take the month of December. And we do our best on the platform to you to prepare yourself, to prepare all of us for for the holidays, for Christmas. And uh, this year, Brad and I put our heads together and we decided to do a a little mini teaching series, a four-week series called Don't Miss Christmas. And we thought we would trace back to the original Christmas story that took place in Bethlehem. But we would look not at the stars of that story, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men, but rather the people in the story that missed it completely. You do know there were people that were a part of that story that we read about in the scriptures that just somehow missed the point. In fact, last week, as we kicked off the series, we looked at King Herod. Remember that name? King Herod was the king of Israel, but he completely missed the birth of the king of the, you know, the, the, king of the Jews because he was king at the time and felt completely that he would be displaced. And it was out of fear that he missed the point. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at part two, and we're going to talk about how it's very easy to miss it, to miss Christmas, but more than that, to miss God's work in our life due to disappointment. I want you to think for just a moment, back in your life, maybe recent history or way, way back when you were growing up, where you experienced a deep disappointment in your life. Someone that you thought was going to come through didn't come through. Or something you thought was going to happen never happened. But I want you just to think for a moment how that made you feel and how it might have changed the course of how you lived or thought or perceived or or acted or talked to other people. I'm going to submit today that disappointment is often the hinge upon which the door of history turns. And oftentimes negative history happens because individuals went through a deep, deep, deep disappointment. Case in point. Back in the uh, 1800s, there was a boy who grew up in a Jewish family in Germany. He had a deep admiration for his father because his father seemed to be just a role model. He was deeply uh, convicted to be involved with the Jewish faith. He was active in the synagogue. 
deeply involved with religious instruction, and he demanded his whole family be a part of that too. That was just the barometer. That was the compass, if you will, for their family. But when he was a teenager, this boy's family was forced to move to another German town. Due to the economy and business, they moved to a different town. And in this new town, there was no Jewish synagogue at all. In fact, the pillars of this city were all, all belonged to the Lutheran church. And so his dad just, out of nowhere, kind of immediately just announced that they were going to leave their Jewish tradition and join the Lutheran church. And when they were all you know, confused about this, dad said, well, the reason for religious activity in the first place is to make business contacts. And so they shifted. But this left this teenage boy with a deep-seated disappointment in his father and his lack of integrity. And this disappointment turned into anger and resentment. In fact, later when he was old enough, he moved away from Germany to England and began his studies there. And it was while he was in England he began to write something that you have all heard of. The boy grew to be a man, and the man grew to become a leader named Karl Marx. And what he was writing at the time was the Communist Manifesto, which changed the course of history for hundreds of millions of people who lived, have lived in socialistic or communistic governments. But it started with a huge disappointment on how money was everything and religion was the opiate of the masses. Sad. At the turn of the 20th century, there was another boy growing up in Germany who also had a deep admiration for his dad. In fact, he seemed to be obsessed with pleasing his father and somehow getting the approval of father. But it never, ever seemed to come. When he turned 10, 11, 12 years old, he would come to his dad with, with career choices he was wanting to make, hoping his dad would say, son, you would be great at that. It's in you. But he never got that response. In fact, as was the case in many dads 100 years ago, there was not much affection, not much attention given to the children. And so this boy said, Dad, I'm, I'm thinking about becoming an artist. I think I'd like to do that. And his dad said, oh, I don't think you're talented enough for that. Later, he went to his dad and said, I'm actually thinking about becoming a priest. I'd like to serve in the church. His dad said, oh, you can't make any money doing that. And one by one, all the ideas he brought to his father were never good enough. And then, as a teenager... One night, he heard his parents arguing in the kitchen. They were talking about moving away, and this kid just felt for sure they were going to move away and leave him behind. That's how insecure he was at the time. And it was at that point he put a very real emotional wall up in his life. Too much disappointment had come, and that wall prevented anyone from getting inside ever again. This boy grew up to be a man, and you know this man as the leader, Adolf Hitler. Amazing how he changed the course for millions of people in the middle part of the 20th century. But it all began with a deep-seated disappointment. Now, I recognize no one right here today probably is dealing with something perhaps that significant. But every one of us have pockets, don't we, of disappointment. Something that's happened in our past that maybe we've suppressed, but we never really got through. Maybe a small pocket, maybe a big pocket, but I'm guessing that everybody in this room would say, yep, I could tell you there were two or three disappointments that I just kind of, well, they just kind of lingered inside of me. And I'm suggesting they can actually affect the way you experience or fail to experience Christmas. And not only Christmas, but this next year, this next decade, this, the rest of your life. So let's dig in. I want to look at a case study in the scripture that's going to inform us today and um, I think point us in the right direction. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them up. And I'd like you to first open up to the book of Matthew. That's where we were last week. 
Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read just two verses, verses 18 and 19. Then we're going to flip over to the book of Luke and read another account and see how Luke recorded the whole thing. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, is first of all the story of Joseph and the news that first came to him. And I want you to see how he responds. Matthew 1, let's start reading with verse 18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, many of you know that... um, the betrothal that Mary and Joseph were experiencing was, was the closest thing we have to an engagement, but it was much stronger than an engagement. When we were engaged today, you could break it off and it would be okay. It'd be a little bit disheartening, but, and maybe the gifts have already come in for the wedding, but it would be okay. It wasn't anything illegal, wasn't anything wrong. It just, I just decided to break it off. Did you notice they used the word divorce here? Joseph was going to divorce from this betrothal. The bet- to be betrothed to another person meant you were experiencing all the responsibilities of being committed to a marriage, but none of the privileges, if you know what I'm talking about, okay? So Joseph decided, oh my gosh, She's pregnant. Oh, my goodness. She's, it's a teen pregnancy. I mean, you know, my goodness gracious. And it said because he was a righteous man, he immediately went into damage control. And really the damage control was on two fronts. He wanted to save Mary from public disgrace. But I'm thinking he also wanted to save his own name. After all, he was this righteous man that was committed to this woman that's now pregnant. And it wasn't his child. Interesting. Interesting to me. In fact, it poses the big question in my mind. Why would God introduce this glorious news, this news of good tidings and great joy, first through an experience of hurt and disappointment? Let's read Luke's account. In Luke chapter 1, we read um, really Mary's side of the story. And listen to what Luke writes. We're going to start reading with verse 26, and we'll read all the way down to verse 38. Here's what it says. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, is, uh, she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me 
as you have said. And then the angel left her. I find it interesting that when the angel shows up, and by the way, usually when angels show up, they're big, big honking people, okay, nine foot tall, and uh, the, the angel shows up, and the first words that is used to describe Mary's response is, Mary was troubled, okay? And I think it was not only a troubling th- sense of, oh my gosh, I'm in the presence of an angel, but the news he's bringing, while it's good news ultimately, is bad news instantly, agreed? This is going to be news that I'm going to have to do a lot of as Ricky Ricardo said, a lot of splaining to do, okay? Uh, Lucy, you have some splaining to do. Remember that? Okay. She's got to explain, oh my gosh, I've never been with Joseph and it doesn't belong to any other man, but I'm pregnant, mom. I'm pregnant, dad. And this is just, this is not going to go over well. It wouldn't go over well today, but it certainly wasn't going to go over well in this fine, righteous Jewish culture. She was going to become a statistic, an unwanted teen pregnancy. Her family name was going to be tarnished now. And so I think because Mary's thinking, I don't know who's going to empathize with me. I don't know anybody that's going to understand in my family that she takes the angel's advice. When he says, Elizabeth, your relative, she's also going to have a baby. This one's a minor miracle, not a major miracle. She does have a husband, but she's well past the days of childbearing. She's going to have a baby. Mary runs off to spend some time with Elizabeth. And it's with Elizabeth that she gets comforted and Elizabeth goes, I I get it. I I think this is a God thing, not a human thing. But she spends maybe weeks and weeks and weeks, maybe a few months with, with Elizabeth. But I want you to step into their sandals for just a moment. Eventually, Mary has to come back and break the news to the families. And both Joseph's family and Mary's family, I I, I just think that, I I don't know. We don't know a lot about how they responded, but I got to think, if they're like a typical Jewish family, they're just not going to get it. This good news is really bad news. In fact, instead of imagining, I want you to look at the screens. I wonder if their response might have been a little bit something like this. It's hard to imagine being the parents in that situation. Two big disappointments. One, she's going to have a baby. She's, it's going to be out of wedlock. Your synagogue experience will always be different now. All the families are buzzing about you and this unwanted grandchild you're about to have. But then secondly, did you catch it in the scene there? She's telling them she's going to give birth to the Son of God. I'm sorry, if your teenager came back and said this, you might be having some questions too. So, let's step back at arm's length and let's, let's ask ourselves the question, as human beings, just having a talk here, what is it that sparks disappointment in our life? I mean, obviously they're all going to live, they're all going to survive, but this is news that causes great disappointment. What is it that causes you and me to experience this letdown in our life? I'm going to suggest there's four primary reasons why we get disappointed. This is not rocket science, but let's just start there at the big picture view. Reason number one, we get disappointed. I think the first reason is we expected something to occur that failed to occur. 
Maybe nobody ever promised us anything, but we, we felt like the, 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 the stars were aligned. It was, it was all in line. This job is going to come through. Or this spouse, it's going to happen. And then it didn't. We felt expectant. We felt entitled. We were anticipating something that suddenly didn't happen. And we were let down. Emotionally, we're drained. The second reason I think we get disappointed is um, we needed someone to help us. And they didn't. Maybe they didn't promise anything, but these people saw the need. They have a three-digit IQ. They're clearly seeing that I need something. Why didn't they step in and help? And for some of you here today, this has been your story. People along the way, family or friends, did not come through for you. And now your story is marked by these failures. You, you were hopeful, and your hopes were dashed. Third reason we get disappointed is we'd been promised something that never came through. This is the scenario that's kind of a second cousin to that first one, but now people actually told us, I will be there. I'll help you move that furniture to your basement. I'll come over and help you get that stuff from the store over to your house. Help you move. I'll help you move. Or whatever it was. And they actually said, point blank, they're going to do it. So you're counting on them because, I mean, after all, their word is their bond, isn't it? Not so much. And maybe they never told you when they couldn't. They never, they never told you they weren't coming. And so there you were waiting, waiting, and waiting, and now it's not going to happen. And then the fourth reason I think we get disappointed is we assumed that we could accomplish something, and then we failed. In other words, we disappoint ourselves. We felt like it was in us, and when we went to perform, we didn't come through. The raise didn't happen. This didn't happen. That didn't happen. The connections didn't happen. And now we look in the mirror and we don't even respect the person that's staring back at us. We're disappointed. Now with that in mind, quite frankly, I believe Mary was a source of disappointment to both her family and Joseph's family. Both of those families uh, relished public honor and now she was giving them not only not public honor but public humiliation. The family name was tarnished. It was stained. This pregnancy out of wed. Listen, for the Jewish culture, just so you see the, the, the gravity of it, in the Jewish culture, to be pregnant out of wedlock was just about as bad as stealing or murder. It was not only immoral, it was illegal. I mean, today it happens and it's a bad thing, but come on, let's face it. Probably all of us know somebody that had a baby out of wedlock. Somebody got pregnant as a teenager and shouldn't have. But it's, it's relatively common. Back then, it was a crime punishable crime. And now this good girl, this girl, Mary was a good girl, and she's got this news. She is a source of disappointment. I guess what I'm saying to you right now is simply this. Isn't it interesting that the first miracle of the New Testament started with bad news, not good news? Started with disappointment, not joy, at least for certain people in the story. And Mary's family, you saw in this, Mary's family, they, you know, they, they were, they're starting to guess whose child is it. I mean, let's face it, the dad was a dad. Who, who was the guy? Come on, just get come clear. Who was the guy? And Mary's saying, I'm telling you the truth. Interesting. The good news was first bad news. Now, let me apply this to our lives today. My guess is that all of you were much like me as you began your adult life. Maybe you're not mapping it all out. Maybe you're not a list maker, but you had a plan when you started your adult life. 
You're going to get this great job, and it was going to pay a lot of money. You're going to get married. It's going to be a happy marriage. You're going to have children. You're going to get these cars. And somewhere along the way, nearly every single person in this room today would say, well, it didn't exactly happen like I thought. True? Maybe you're not whining about it, but the thing you mapped out in your head, well, the map wasn't accurate. And now there's, well, your path has been littered with little disappointments along the way. You had to to adjust yourself to them. So with that in mind, here's what I'd like to do. I would like to take the remaining time I have, and I would like to share with you today three word pictures, three metaphors that I think guide us, that instruct us, that inform us as we take this journey on, on entering into Christmas, perhaps with pockets full of disappointments in our past. Maybe even holiday time is a disappointing time to you. Maybe your memories of Christmas aren't good memories. It's not the Disney thing with balloons and stars and pixie dust everywhere. Maybe you imagined it that way, but there were things that happened along the way. Families broke up and kids ran away or that happened or the job lost or or, or whatever it was. But now you're entering this new next Christmas with some disappointments and it's a little bit tarnished. Three word pictures that I think are helpful, at least I hope somewhat helpful for you as you as you move into Christmas. The first one, they're all going to sound a little bit strange, but what more would you expect from me, okay? So um, let me give you the first one. The first one is what I call a GPS or a compass. A GPS or a compass. Now, you all know what a GPS is, don't you? The global positioning system. Most of you in this room use a GPS when you're driving. You've either got one in your car that you plug in the address, the destination you want to get to, and it tells you exactly all the right turns to make to get to the destination. In fact, most of the time, the GPS is a godsend. I'll never forget my, my first GPS I got. I've still got it on my phone right now. My first GPS I got on my phone, it was like magic. Remember the first feeling you had? You thought to yourself, I will never get lost again. Remember that feeling? In fact, I thought myself, my children will grow up in a world where they will never be lost. Well, in theory, that's true. In theory. But just months after getting my very first GPS app, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? The app on your phone that you, you plug in and there it is. You just write in the directions, and, or excuse me, the destination, it gives you all the directions in this wonderful, pleasant, poised British accent. And if you do something wrong, she goes, rerouting. Not a big deal. It's just not a big deal. She'll guide you there. I thought, this is my magic from this point on, because I travel quite a bit. Months after getting my first GPS system, I discovered the GPS was not magic at all. I was, pardon me, I was in some godforsaken place in Saskatchewan, Canada, where there were no paved roads in this particular area, no road names. I couldn't plug anything in. I got no help at all. This nice British lady is not helpful. Now, I'm not trying to be silly with you, but it suddenly became very clear in those situations when you're in uncharted territory and there are no names or paved roads, the only thing that really helps you is the other app you might have on your phone. It's called a compass. Now, you young whippersnappers don't even know what a compass is. Can I tell you what a compass is? It was developed millenniums ago in China, but a compass is something that tells you exactly where true north is. Roads or no roads, it will show you where true north is. My simple application is this. For some of you, you're moving into uncharted territories. Maybe this Christmas, maybe this next year. You've never been there before. There is no address. 
In fact, frankly, if I can just be really blunt with you, there's no Bible verse that can tell you what to do April 23rd next year. So, you've got to have something that tells you what your true north is. That even if you do not know what to do, there is no, there's no prescription, there's at least description. Here's where I know true north is. Now, let me dig deeper on this. I had a mentor say something to me years and years and years ago that I've never forgotten, and it may be helpful for you at this particular point. As I was going through a particular downtime, my mentor said to me, Tim, I have found in my life that it's very difficult to get disillusioned or disappointed, very difficult to get disillusioned unless you're first illusioned. Can I say that again? Very difficult to get disillusioned unless you're first illusioned, meaning you had some illusion of how life was supposed to be, and it's not real. It's not accurate. Ladies, am I not right? At one point, you thought, I'm going to be a princess and marry a prince. Prince Charming. It's going to be delightful. And Disney gave you this thing, and I love Disney, but come on, let's just face it. We had this unrealistic picture, and then you realized after every wedding comes a marriage. Come on. And it's not a bad marriage, it's just, he's just not Prince Charming every day. Now, let me get real with you. I have found that very, very often my disappointments, my disillusionment comes first from the fact that I had an illusion about how life was going to be. I had this illusion at 20 years old that life was going to be easy. It's not easy. That jobs would be available, and sometimes they're not available. That marriage was just going to be a happy, blissful thing, and it's work. It's, it's worth it, but it's work. That church people are nice all the time. Well, that's true at Northridge, but other churches, don't you think? Sometimes it's just not true. Now, I'm having fun with you, but, but listen, that's kind of a true one, isn't it? Church people ought to be nice. You're right. But church people are first human, aren't they? That have bad days and bad attitudes and bad breath and everything else goes awry sometimes. And I guess I just need to start with, you know what? We're human and life is hard. And if I'll start there, it's not bad news, it's just, I'm going to start with reality. Then anything wonderful is a bonus. It's great. Thank you for being nice. I appreciate that. All I'm simply saying is, i got to have the right compass. And a compass tells me, even when the map is, whether the map's accurate or inaccurate, doesn't matter. i got a compass. I know where my true north is. Let me give you the second metaphor. The second metaphor is one, it's going to seem really random, just stay with me by faith, Okay. The second uh, metaphor or the word picture is buckets and ladles. Buckets and ladles. I actually learned this one years ago from reading a great book. The book was called How Full Is Your Bucket? Written by Donald Clifton and Tom Rath. It was a book. It was an easy read. But in the book, basically I'm going to give you the message of the book. In this book, the authors suggest that every single human being on planet Earth has inside of them an invisible bucket and an invisible ladle. And with every interaction you have with other people every day, you're either ladling out of your bucket into theirs or ladling out of theirs into yours. This happens all the time. In fact, in most interactions, you ladle in and out. A little of both happens, right? You're encouraging someone, you're giving some, you're offering some value, or you're, I need some. You know, you're taken back into yours. I have noticed that when I'm in a state of disappointment, I'm almost always ladling out of theirs into mine. I'm empty. My bucket's kind of empty. And I don't plan this, but I just need you to do something for me. 
And my guess is every one of you, especially during this hustle, bustle, hectic time of year, will find yourself with an empty bucket, or at least an almost empty bucket. Ladies, may I speak to you for just a moment? I know that very, very, very often, you ladies, especially if you're not only working, but you're a mama and a wife, you get to the end of your day and you're emotionally spent. It has been an emotionally expensive day. Ladies, have you had one lately? And you get to the end of the day and the kids or your husband or someone just needs one more thing and you're thinking, good grief, does someone, is anybody else needing, needs, you know, and you're just, you're just spent. Your bucket's empty. You love these people, you love these people. In fact, you tell yourself, I do love these people, okay? But you're just wasted. Men, happens to you too. Maybe you've had a very difficult day, very stressful day, you're in problem-solving mode and you do not need one more problem to arise at the end of the day. And then you enter Christmas. You know it's a time of celebration. Pass me the eggnog and put something in it, please. But, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. This is church. Okay. But, <laughs> but you get to the end of the day and the bucket's empty. In fact, maybe it's empty because there's been some disappointment. There's been some problems you've not been able to solve. And they're grinding at you. Now, very quickly, I want to share something with you. In this book, How Full Is Your Bucket? They basically talk about the fact that to fill someone's bucket can only be done when yours is full, or at least when there's something there. And they suggest in the book that very, very often what we think might be a luxury is really a necessity. In this book, they talk about the very, 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 very worst war experience we've ever had in America, particularly prisoner of war experience, the POW experience. In all of the wars or battles that America has fought in, from the Revolutionary War in the beginning of our nation all the way to current day Afghanistan and Iraq, do you know what the very first prisoner of war experience is that we've ever had? It wasn't what I would have guessed, like maybe World War II or Vietnam. wasn't those, although those were atrocious. After the soldiers returned and psychologists interviewed them and worked with them, We are told that the very first POW experience we've ever had was the Korean conflict in the 1950s. My dad fought in the Korean conflict. But in a nutshell, here's what they say. The North Korean captors that took our soldiers and put them in prison camps did something that no one had ever done quite this badly. It wasn't that the food wasn't good or they didn't get very much, although it wasn't good and they didn't get very much. It wasn't that the tortures were especially horrible, although they were not good. It was the fact that the North Korean captors removed all sources of encouragement and hope. I said they removed all sources of encouragement and hope. These battle-hardened, trained soldiers were first turned on each other. They took away all the ranks, and they started having these soldiers air out the dirty laundry they had against each other, telling bad stories and making them feel horrible. And they, they turned the soldiers against each other, our own soldiers. And then they put them in isolation, And in isolation, they made sure that only bad news came in, no good news. In fact, if letters were sent from overseas, only the letters that came horrible news, that that were full of horrible news got through. Letters that would say something like, dear sweetheart, um, I can't take this anymore, I'm going to divorce you. Those letters made it through. The letters that never, never made it through were, dear sweetheart, I'm waiting for you, I can hardly wait for you to come home. Never made it through. In this book, they report that these trained soldiers would eventually, after some weeks, curl up in a fetal position and eventually die from starvation. But not physical starvation, emotional starvation. Their buckets were completely empty. And they left us. 
I drew a conclusion after reading this book that encouragement is not a luxury. It is the oxygen of the soul. I have to breathe it in and out. I have to give it, I have to receive it. And I know that sounds kind of corny and cheesy, but I'm just telling you, when your bucket's empty, it often gets empty because of disappointment. Something you felt you needed or did need never came through, and now you've got nothing to give. This leads me to the last metaphor. The third word picture I want to share with you is something I shared with you years ago in headline. I want to go a little bit deeper here. The third metaphor is something I simply call stepping stones or tombstones. Stepping stones or tombstones. Here's how it works, at least for me. I have noticed that at every point of my personal growth, at every point in the sequence of my my journey, God will allow a junction, a season of conflict where I become hurt or disappointed. It's usually at the point of an event or a person. But what I do with this hurt will either become a stepping stone, a platform for further growth, or a tombstone where I will get stuck and die. Not literally die. And by the way, I'm still going to heaven when I die because I'm a Christian. But I will no longer grow. I will get stuck. I'll continue to go to church. I'll live till I'm 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. But I'm stuck. I got stuck way back in 1989 because of how I dealt with or failed to deal with a disappointment. It's very, very interesting. And by the way, you see this all the way through the scripture. But I'm simply saying, here's the bottom line I want you to catch. When you face uncharted territory, maybe you face a disappointment you never thought you'd ever have to face, so you didn't mentally prepare. You don't know what you do. You're in uncharted territory. Forget the GPS. There's, there's, no, there's nobody that tells you exactly what to do. What you've got to do is find your true north. And in those times of disappointment, can I just offer one very important piece of advice? The true north in that situation is always, always, always to let it go and forgive. Do you mind if I say that again? The true north is always to let it go and forgive. So that this thing doesn't grind at you and constantly come back to haunt you, you just need to let it go. And listen, this Christmas, some of you will be in uncharted territory. This might be the first Christmas after the divorce. This might be the very first Christmas you have after getting laid off. This might be the very first Christmas after the kids have left home and they've gone a totally different route than the one you had hoped that they would take. This might be the very first Christmas with a blended family and it's just going to be awkward. I don't know what it is, but you might be in uncharted territory. And can I just tell you, you've got to find your true north. And for me, it's just for me, this, this Bible is my true north. And I know that I watch a Savior who eventually hangs on a cross. You'd think his bucket was empty. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Somehow, when you choose the true north and you let it go, God in his miraculous wisdom is able to refill your bucket in obedience to him. And it's a God thing. When you find it within you to say, I'm letting this thing go, I'm going to treat them at Christmas like nothing ever happened. I'm not denial. I'm just saying, I'm letting it go. God fills your bucket and you're able then to ladle out again. You've got it in you. And it's not because you're so good. It's because he's so good. Some of you know, know exactly what I'm talking about. You know this is true, don't you? It's because God has been 
very, very good to you. Now, for some of you are sitting right there saying, Tim, that makes sense. I'd love to, love to be able to do it. I cannot do it. I just can't do it. That's what I'm saying. I know you can't do it. So if you first receive his forgiveness, he gives you the wherewithal to forgive. The scripture says, forgive even as you have been forgiven. And do you realize as you sit here today, whether you're a Christian or not, he's offering forgiveness to you. He gives you the capacity to let it go. Because he let it go. But you've got to take him up on it. And by the way, I've noticed When you choose the true north, you forgive and let it go. He fills your bucket and all of this becomes a stepping stone, not a tombstone. You don't get stuck. You keep moving forward. You become a better version of you in a year or two or three. But it all starts with your decision, with you choosing to deal with this appropriately. I want to close very quickly with a story. It's actually a story that I shared part of it with you years ago when I was here with you. But I want to share a part of the story I've never shared publicly before. In a nutshell, some of you remember that in 1990, more than 20 years ago, I was in a plane crash, a small plane crash. Um, Obviously, I survived. But um, I never thought I'd be sitting in front of a group of people saying I was in a plane crash. But I was in a plane crash. Very quickly, I was in New Zealand. It was a two-week stint of time, and we were doing some great big meetings for students, high school and college students, and I was sharing Christ, and we were seeing many of them come to the Lord, and it was just an awesome first week. Then the four of us on our team climbed onto a commercial airliner. We flew down to the South Island for the second week of meetings. After we landed in the South Island, the four of us climbed on this single-engine small plane where Grant, the pilot, was going to fly us to the campsite where we're going to have a big tent meeting and have, I don't know, speak to about a thousand high school students. Well, as Grant's attempting to land the plane, we noticed it was an airstrip that really wasn't a real airstrip. It was a grassy field and then a big forest at the end of it. So he's going to have to, thank God it was a little plane, he's going to have to land this plane, bring it to a stop before the forest begins. Well, as Grant starts to bring the plane down, he suddenly realizes he's not going to be able to land the plane and bring it to a stop before hitting the trees. And so he looks back at us in the back seat and says, you may want to tighten your seatbelts again. I'm going to take this plane back up. We're going to circle around and try this landing one more time. Well, as he takes the plane back up, that's when it all happens. The engine stalls. The lights start flashing. The buzzers are buzzing. And, <laughs> and in that moment, the reason I knew I was in trouble, the pilot screamed. <laughs> yep, that's how you know you're in trouble when an airplane when the pilot in the cockpit is screaming. It's a guarantee every time you're in trouble. Well, we start to tip, and I was wide awake for the whole thing. We hit the ground. We start to spiral. The left wing hits first. The wing bashes up into dozens of pieces. The torso hits. Grant's seatbelt broke. The pilot went right through the windshield. It was horrible. We're all thrown around. We spin around. Fire starts in the propeller, but after it stops, after it finally stops, the plane is there on the ground, and we're all still alive. It was a, it was a miracle. Well, people start running out and they start pulling our bodies from the plane, the three of us that were still there. They lay us on the ground. And my first thought, very predictably, was, oh my gosh, is my body still intact? Do I have my limbs? Am I breathing? Is my blood circulating? And when I discovered it was, I thought, awesome, great. But then I started thinking something that I'm not proud of. In fact, I'm ashamed of it. But ladies, if you don't know how a man's brain works, you start, I'm I'm problem solving. And I'm starting to think, okay, we need to diagnose. What happened here? Whose fault is this? Why did this happen? And I immediately go to Grant. It was pilot error, very obviously. The plane was in great shape. Grant was not instrument rated and he, 
he just panicked and didn't respond well to, to the landing of this airplane. And again, I'm, not, I'm ashamed of this, but I started thinking, doggone it. Now I'm not going to be able to do this ministry I was going to do this week and speak to a thousand kids and see them come to the Lord. Now I'm going to spend my week in some emergency unit in a hospital. It's, it's disappointment. It's anger. It's hurt. And as I'm laying there thinking this thought, Grant is helped by a few people before he gets on the life flight helicopter. He walks over and he just says, oh God, I'm so sorry, Tim. Please forgive me. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And I have a split second to make up my mind what I'm going to do. Am I going to mouth the words but not really do it? Or am I going to be able to let it go? (laughs) Somehow, whatever's going to happen, I'm going to let this go. And I knew enough about I knew enough about my true north in that moment to say, Grant, it's no problem. And we hugged. It was a painful hug, but we hugged. And Grant went off. Well, I discovered very rapidly there was room for three in the life flight helicopter. Four of us were needing help. Guess who, guess who got left behind? Bye, fellas. Have a great time. Tell the nurses I said hello. They take off. The rest of the people take me over to the house right next door where I'm supposed to um, rest for a little while until the helicopter gets back. Well, as I'm resting in this house next door, kind of licking my wounds about how this was going to be a week of recovery rather than a week of ministry, there's a knock at the front door of the house. And as the homeowners answer the door, who should be on the front porch of this house but news people from the two national television networks in New Zealand? Evidently, this little plane crash was the number one news story of the day, okay? Which tells you exactly how much is going on in that little country right now. So, anyway, they got cameras, mics, the anchor man is there, and he says... We want to do a story on the, news cr- on, the, on the plane crash. Do you have anybody here that saw the plane crash? They said, saw the plane crash? We've got a guy in the back bedroom that was in the plane crash. They said, really, 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 can he talk? They said, can he talk? They've met me. We'll go get him. So they, they grabbed me because I, evidently I was talking of a storm. So they grabbed me. They said, Elmore, Elmore, you've got to do an interview. So this is so funny. They took me out into the backyard because I can't really walk well. They leaned me up against a tree. I'm trying to look cool, <laughs> leaning up and hey, good to see you, man. So I'm trying to look cool as they leaned me up against a tree and then they started rolling the cameras and the anchorman said, tell us what happened. Well, I do not know about what you would think of that, but I felt like that was an invitation to speak. Don't you? An invitation to share a little bit. So I did. I talked about the protection of God, the saving grace of Jesus, the plan of salvation. I went from Genesis to maps in the back of the Bible. I covered the whole cotton pig thing in five minutes. And you know something? Here's what's cool. I got done. They went back. They, they hardly edited anything. And I got to share Christ with three million New Zealanders at the five o'clock, six o'clock, and 11 o'clock news. Now, amen. Thank you, Lord. Now, would I plan it again that way? No, no. No, I'm not dumb, okay? But listen to me. I'm also not in control. The only thing I have control of is how I'm going to respond to my hurt and my disappointment. One of my favorite musicians that's been a musician for decades now, maybe you know his name, his name is Phil Keggy. Phil Keggy's been writing, he's a great guitarist, but he's been writing Christian music for years. Phil Keggy wrote a song called Disappointment, and may I close with just reading the first stanza of his song. He says it all. He simply says, disappointment, his appointment, change one letter, then I see that the thwarting of my purpose 
was God's better plan for me. I want to pray with you. And I'm going to pray briefly. But I want to pray for all of you first that whatever pockets of disappointment you carry in your, in your life right now, that this Christmas you're able to resolve them. You're able to deal with them. You're able to find your true north. And then I want to pray a special prayer for those of you that are here every weekend that maybe have come to church for a while, but you've never stepped over that line of faith and you've never said, Jesus, I want to personally invite you to come into my life. I want to know I belong to you. I'm going to pray a second prayer. And if, if that's where you are today, I'm going to just lead you phrase by phrase in a prayer. And if it expresses the desire of your heart, I want you just to pray with me. Let's do it. Father, first of all, I pray briefly for the people that are in this room, everyone who maybe um, just haven't handled their disappointment perfectly. It's still lingering in their minds, their hearts. It's haunting them. I pray you would give them a sense of true north. That you give them the capacity to, to let it go. And then, Father, with a full bucket, I pray you'd help them to ladle out into the lives of others this Christmas. And then, God, I pray now for those that are sitting here listening and saying this makes sense, but I just don't know if I have it in me to forgive. Lord, I pray you come into their life to forgive them and then in return give them the capacity to let it go. Now, if you're seated here today and you'd love to maybe take that first step with Jesus, let me lead you in a prayer. And I'm not gonna have to ask you to step up or come forward. I just want you to stay right where you are, but pray this prayer. Dear God, I do want to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to the cross to die for my sin. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. I now invite you to come into my life to be my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for the gift of everlasting life with you. Now, God, shape me into the person you want me to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, before you leave, if you just prayed that prayer with me, congratulations, best decision you'll ever make. In the program you got on the way in, there's a little flap on the right side, one that you can tear off. I want you just to, um, if you would, if you just prayed that prayer with me, fill out your contact info, and then at the bottom, you'll just check that little box that simply says, today I prayed to receive Christ in my life for the first time. Big decision. What we'd like to do is if you'll walk out with this and just put it in one of those boxes right next to the doors on the way in, we'd just love to follow up, send you some things, and help you get started in your new walk with God. I love you all. Merry Christmas. Have a great week. God bless.